0: It's Thursday, July 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Federal executions are back, and for the first time in 17 years, a death row inmate was put to death in Indiana. Daniel Lee Lewis was a member of a white supremacist group and was found guilty of murdering a family of three, including an eight-year-old girl in 1996. Tim Evans, investigative reporter at the Indianapolis Star, was there to witness the execution and gives us details of how it all played out. Next, we've seen a number of states experience a surge in coronavirus cases and become new hotspots. Largely avoiding a big outbreak early in the pandemic, Arizona now has the highest per capita rate of COVID-19 cases in America over the past week. Local officials and public health experts are pointing a finger at the leadership for being complacent and not preparing for a future wave when they had time. Dan Frosch, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Arizona wasn't ready for its coronavirus surge. Finally, it's over for former Attorney General and Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. Sessions was one of the first to endorse President Trump, add legitimacy to his campaign, and rise to Attorney General. Later, Sessions was fired, and now he has lost a runoff for his old Senate job. Amber Phillips, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the rise and fall of Jeff Sessions. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in.
1: I obviously, you know, I'm in a glass window. I could not necessarily hear what he was saying. If he said anything, he looked very peaceful and calm. He did continue to breathe longer than I expected. I don't know no, no, um, what I expected. It wasn't instantaneous. Joining us
0: now is Tim Evans, investigative reporter at the Indianapolis Star. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Federal executions are back. This week, we had the first federal death row inmate to be put to death in 17 years. That was Daniel Lee Lewis. Tim, you were actually there for the execution. Tell us a little bit about his story, why he was put to death, and some of the complications because he was scheduled to be put to death on Monday. There was a last-minute halt on that, and then it all ended up happening on Tuesday.
1: Daniel Lee was convicted in a 1996 murder in Arkansas of a uh, gun dealer, the gun dealer's wife and the uh, woman's eight-year-old daughter. He and a co-conspirator were both convicted of three counts of murder. They were both white supremacists and his colleague uh, who was the mastermind of the group, Chevy Kehoe, was tried first, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Daniel Lee was sentenced after Keough and got the death penalty, which, uh, you know, was a motive of contention for a lot of people because Keough was seen as the ringleader and Keo was actually the person who killed the little girl, which is probably the most heinous aspect of the crime.
0: Did they say why he got the death penalty over Keough?
1: It's interesting. In 2014, the retired federal judge who sat on the case and the retired federal prosecutor both wrote letters to the Justice Department saying they didn't think it was fair. There was an indication also one of the victim's relatives had written that Kehoe came off a uh, neat, clean cut. He was more articulate. He had some strong character witnesses on his behalf, where um, Lee had a, uh, a neo-Nazi Rolling 7 tattoo on his neck. In terms of character witnesses for defense, he looked imposing. He had a, an eye that had been damaged in a fight. So in a lot of people's opinions, it was more of appearance right. than culpability that created the uh, disparity in those two sentences.
0: And his last words in this whole thing was, you're killing an innocent man. Tell us a little bit about the delay in the execution. Part of it was Lee was part of a lawsuit alleging that it was cruel and unusual punishment, the use of the one drug protocol, the pentobarbital. There's been other executions that have brought up similar things. So it was put on hold. And there was this moment where Lee was on the gurney for a few hours while the judges were still kind of debating back and forth. And then they ended up giving the go ahead.
1: Lee was actually scheduled to be sentenced last fall and appeals at that time uh, regarding the One Drug Protocol, which was obviously new for the federal government since it hadn't executed anyone since 2003. He was put on hold, and then he was scheduled to be executed Monday at 4 p.m., and there were last-minute wrangling over the weekend. Friday, a federal circuit court judge issued a stay over the weekend. Another uh, superior court got involved, removed the stay, and then there were a flurry of last-minute delays on Monday. And ended up, again, he was scheduled to be executed at 4 p.m., about 2 a.m. The Supreme Court ruled that the execution could go ahead and it uh, was tentatively scheduled for 4 a.m. And uh, we got called back to the prison to the left or two after, right after that ruling and went to the execution chamber. We were in there to the left for 4 a.m. and waited again. And as there was one last um, appeal. Uh, Lee had been in the execution chamber for, since about 4 a.m., a little bit longer than we were, and was strapped to the gurney in the actual room, which kind of looks like an emergency room in a hospital. He was strapped to the gurney from 4 a.m. until they began the execution until after 7:45 a.m.
0: And in the end, they said that this drug, pentobarbital, has become a mainstay of state executions. It's been used over 100 times without incident. It's considered less painful than other lethal injection protocols, so that's why they went ahead and approved it. Tim you were there to witness this execution. Is this the first one that you've witnessed?
1: Yes, and hopefully the last.
0: Did you notice any complications with the protocol?
1: No, it did not appear. And I obviously, you know, I'm in a glass window. I could not necessarily hear what he was saying. If he said anything, it looked very peaceful and calm. He did continue to breathe longer than I expected. I don't know no, no, um, what I expected. It wasn't instantaneous. It seemed to go over a matter of, two or three minutes at least uh, after they began administering the drugs, but he didn't ride some of the horror stories you read out of places like Oklahoma and Ohio where they had some botched executions. There was nothing like that. He um, kind of moved his head at one point a little bit. He, I guess, bubbled his lips a little bit like he might be blowing bubbles, but nothing came out and there was a slight twitch on one of his arms. But beyond that, there seemed to be no restraint, you know, wrestling against the restraints or no suffering or, or, or wild thrashing or anything like that you know, appeared very peaceful and in a surreal sort of way.
0: You mentioned, obviously, you hope this is the last one you were to witness. I just have to ask, how has this impacted you? This was just a few days ago, but how has this impacted you?
1: I think it still hasn't all sunk in. I knew other people who had covered executions before, and I talked to them a little bit. And um, so far, knock on wood, it was emotional, obviously, but it wasn't the kind of uh, emotional impact that I had expected necessarily. And I don't know some of that. He, you know, obviously wasn't reticent at all. He didn't make any kind of apology. He was kind of defiant in his last moments. And I I was able to be more detached than I thought I might be being only five or six feet away from where it happened. But time will tell. I I was up for about 36 straight hours. I had a little bit of sleep last night. You know, I still haven't processed everything. But I tried to steal myself as much as possible. And um, so far, so good, I guess.
0: Tim Evans, investigative reporter at the Indianapolis Star. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks again for having me. Have a good day.
2: Occupancy is set by the fire code. Going forward, it will be at less than 50% of that number. Joining
0: us now is Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. As cases keep rising throughout the United States, I wanted to talk about a state who at first was spared a lot of cases. It wasn't so bad for them. There's a a few states like that that are seeing big numbers now. California, Texas, Florida, even at the beginning, wasn't seeing big numbers. Arizona is also one of those states who's just seeing huge numbers. I think they are the state with the highest per capita rate of COVID-19 cases over the past week. And in a lot of ways, this story is about management and leadership during a public health crisis. It seemed they might have gotten complacent early on and didn't prepare for a wave that eventually came. Dan, tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Well, I think that's exactly right. What you saw in Arizona was a state that was doing relatively well. In the early days of the pandemic, their case counts were extremely low. There was a sense that they had somehow managed to sidestep The crisis that was hitting states in the Northeast and elsewhere. And they went to a shelter in place order when things were relatively stable and people abided by the shelter in place order. And that's really when the problems started. During that time period when things were going okay, the state and public health officials did not anticipate an inevitable surge that was going to happen. So they did not stock up on testing equipment. They did not devise a contact tracing plan, at least a robust contact tracing plan. All sort of the the things that the CDC and other public health experts had been saying, look, we need to do this, especially when things are not terrible, so that when they are terrible, we're prepared. And then lastly, they did a real sort of full bore reopening where restaurants, nightclubs, bars, movie theaters, gyms, all reopened with very little compliance or enforcement mechanisms built into the reopening. And so you have this combination of a sort of wide open reopening and a lack of testing, contact tracing, and enforcement and compliance ordinances that had been set up during this period of downtime that all sort of have led us on the path to where we are today in Arizona.
0: What has the governor, Governor Doug Ducey, said of his response to all of this? Because I remember a time where he didn't want to mandate people wearing masks, and he even refused to let individual counties make their own rules. He said, no, you can't do it. you got to follow the state rules. He had to cave in on that later on. What has his response been to this?
2: Ducey has taken a tremendous amount of heat for what local authorities and critics of his have seen as a much more aggressive reopening than an aggressive response to the pandemic. So he has, after taking a lot of criticism from doctors and also from local mayors and civic leaders who wanted, as you pointed out, to implement their own mask ordinances and were, at, were explicitly prohibited from doing so by the governor's executive orders when he reopened, he's backtracked on a number of things. He has allowed cities and counties and municipalities to enact their own mask ordinances. He has closed down movie theaters and gyms again and made restaurants 50% capacity. And he's at least sought to sort of broaden testing capacity. The problem is it may be too little too late to a certain extent because the outbreak hit Arizona so forcefully over the past few weeks that these measures, which critics would say should have been enacted two months ago, are now having to operate as a way to dig Arizona out of the hole that it's in. And so that's why you can't do contact tracing because you can't do contact tracing, which is sort of a time-intensive, resource-intensive operation if you haven't planned for enough contact tracers and you're getting inundated with 3000 cases a day.
0: You spoke to a woman whose father contracted COVID-19. I think he might have died if I'm not missing it, but you know, he said he was following the guidance of the leaders saying, "Hey, it's not that bad here. Hey, You can go out. I want businesses to reopen. And, you know, people that are cooped Mm -hmm. up, businesses that are shut, they want to reopen, obviously. Everybody wants to get back to normal. But if the guidance is not there, we saw the stories, massive parties, all sorts of things. And as I mentioned, you spoke to one woman whose father contracted it because he said he was following the guidance.
2: My colleague spoke to a woman whose father had contracted COVID and, and she had spoken to him. She had warned him about going out she didn't feel it was safe for him and he said well the governor and the president have really been pushing for the reopening of the economy so they're the guys in charge and businesses are open so i'm going to follow the orders of the state here and he went out and he contracted covid several weeks later and he passed away and one of his last conversations he had with his daughter he he heartbreaking he said you know i should have listened to you and look governors of all political stripes Leaders of all political stripes are putting in incredibly difficult positions here because obviously they have to worry about the economics of their states, their business owners who will never be able to reopen again. So there's a lot of competing factors and we've never seen anything like this. So in Arizona's case, there was clearly a temptation because their cases were so low to say, hey, everything's fine here. Let's just open everything back up. Somehow we avoided this. Even though in the back of your mind, you're hearing these voices from public health experts saying, look. We may look fine now, but it's actually not fine and it won't be fine for a little while. So we need to wait. We need to be patient.
0: Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Every statewide elected official in Alabama is a Republican. Except one, Doug Jones. That has to end. Joining
0: us now is Amber Phillips, reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Amber. Hi, Oscar. Happy to be on. Well, we had another day of voting on Tuesday, and what came out of this was just an interesting story. We wanted to look at the rise and fall, really, of former Senator and former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and it kind of provides this cautionary tale for other Republicans who really do attach themselves to President Trump. As we know, Jeff Sessions was the first guy to endorse President Trump. He was there at one of his rallies, kind of giving a little bit of legitimacy to him. And they were in lockstep in their immigration policies. But this is also another story about loyalty, perceived loyalty by the president. I mean, this relationship soured so quickly and so publicly as well. Amber, tell us a little bit about it. Well, if there was one
3: senator in Washington, I thought would really stick with Trump and understand Trump and help guide Trump throughout his administration, I thought it would be Jeff Sessions. He was a senator from Alabama for 20 years, a little bit on the fringe of even Republican politics with his anti-immigrant views, but it was in lockstep with the president. And so, like you said, Sessions helped give the president some legitimacy and you know, have the national media pay a little bit more attention to him and vault his candidacy into something taken more seriously. And then, of course, he won. And the president rewarded Sessions with the attorney general post, which is one of the most coveted cabinet posts in any administration. Sessions, I think, saw no reason for things to go the way they did. What happened after that was the FBI was continuing its investigation that it started during the campaign into Russian interference and whether the Trump campaign worked with Russians at all to do this. The FBI is under the Department of Justice, which Jeff Sessions led at the time, and he was told by his advisors, you need to step aside from this. You were part of the campaign. You met with the Russian ambassador, which Sessions wasn't entirely forthcoming about in this confirmation
0: hearing anyway.
3: Just step aside. So he did. Shortly after that, Trump decided to fire the FBI director. Shortly after that, the person Sessions left in charge, the number two at the Justice Department, put Robert Mueller in place, the special counsel, to lead a more expansive investigation that we know took almost two years. Well, that span of a couple months in 2017, Trump has outright said he blamed Sessions for. He never forgave Sessions for stepping aside. He thought that was the domino that fell that led to the Mueller investigation That led to, you know, this massive time suck and concern about the health of his presidency and the investigations into it. So, like you said, he's been super public about all this and has spent more than a year insulting Sessions and making sure that Tuesday's results were what they were, which is he lost the runoff. He's not coming to Washington.
0: President Trump really saw Jeff Sessions in that position as one that was going to protect him. And as you mentioned, when he recused himself from that whole thing, I think at that point he even said, hey, if if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me I never would have made him attorney general. And as you mentioned, the attacks went on. Yeah, he lost the runoff election to Mr. Tuberville. I think it was about 60 percent to 40 percent. So he lost in double digit numbers. This was after the president was telling people not to vote for him. I mean, he really felt the wrath of this lack of perceived loyalty to the president So what is the cautionary tale for other Republicans who have attached themselves to President Trump or who have chosen to fight against him? Well, it's pretty simple. Don't get on
3: the president's bad side. Just don't do it. (laughs) You know, like I said, Sessions, I don't think he had any reason to believe what he chose to do would lead to this situation he's in now. And so I think Republicans are really nervous that Something you do or say or tweet will get on the president's bad side. He'll go after you relentlessly. You know, we've seen that with Mitt Romney, a senator from Utah, who voted to convict Trump on one impeachment account, the only Republican senator to do so. And then the base will just completely fall out from you and you'll lose your job. I saw that happen in 2018 election cycle with a congressman from South Carolina, Mark Sanford. A Republican, a very conservative guy who was critical of President Trump, one of the more vocal ones, but wasn't super vocal, but he was saying stuff he didn't like that Trump was doing well. On his primary day, Trump tweets, you know, he had a challenger, go, go vote against Mark Sanford, please. And Mark Sanford lost his primary. And he later attributed that to us, to Trump's tweet. You know, there's a couple more examples like that. And I think the Sessions one is really extreme, but it just reminds Republicans, like, Trump is powerful in their party, and they need to stay in lockstep with him.
0: Amber Phillips, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.